0: Stay tuned for the Organic Farm Stand coming right up.
1: Corn in the fields, and listen to the rice when the wind blows
0: across the water. When the king harvest is sure they come. I work for the union, cause she's so good to me. Well, good morning, afternoon, right? Right on the cusp.
2: It's 12.01.
0: It's officially the afternoon. Yeah. You are tuned to WPKN, and this is the Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month from noon to one. My name is Richard Hill. Laura Modlin is sitting right across the console. Hello. Good morning or good afternoon, <laughs> whichever you prefer. For me, this is still morning. I actually. know. It's yeah. a
2: good afternoon to like five for you. Uh, yeah.
0: something like that. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. To be safe.
2: Yeah. People, something like that. It's middle of the night.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and we have Steve Munno from Masao Farm with us also. Steve, how are you doing today?
3: I'm doing all right. Glad to be here.
0: Great to have you. And we have a full show. This is the first uh show of the month. So we have our bee report coming. We have the small farms report. Of course, we start with the solar lunar report Yeah. from uh, Laura. And uh, also we're going to do a new seg- segment starting this week, starting this month that I didn't tell you about.
2: Oh, yeah? yeah. Uh-oh. I'm like, I'm pins and needles. What is it? <laughs> Tenterhooks. Tenterhooks. It's
0: called Richard's Raspberries.
2: Uh, We have to get an update on the (laughs) raspberries that you introduced on the last show.
0: Yeah, couldn't couldn't help myself. And uh, yeah, so we'll we'll, uh, we'll squeeze that in. But, yeah, and then we have a special guest. Why don't you tell us who that is? Well,
2: this time it's personal for me because Patty Pop, the owner of Sport Hill Farm, is largely responsible for me going into learning about farming because I was introduced to um, it doing a newspaper story at her farm back in 2008. And so she has a beautiful pumpkin patch, and she's going to talk to us about pumpkins and her her her. what else is important to her.
0: Oh, okay. Well, you know, it is perfect timing because of Halloween. Yeah. And people are running around like mad trying to buy pumpkins.
2: She has the most amazing pumpkin patch. Every year it's different, and the pumpkins are beautiful, and her motto is it's all about the stem and, you know, she doesn't like people picking up pumpkins by the stem because oh, it's the bottom cruel. It's, it's cruel, cruel. it's <laughs> pumpkin cruelty <laughs> i know it's
0: really i mean yeah no i mean people didn't know about this but now that we do know about it it's just like no you don't you know do it's that. like
2: cigarette smoking you don't pick up pumpkins by their stems
0: yeah and we're going to find out why okay. so that's that's going to be big all right, and so why don't we just kick it right off with the solar lunar report. Happy uh, to. Yeah, it's, it's, we've had some... I was out last night, by the way, at, um, I'm say midnight, maybe, something like that. I was asleep, yeah. The, the sky was so incredibly clear. This Ooh. is in Brantford. I mean, it was nice. crystalline, crystalline. Nice. The There was a huge planet, probably, Not too far from the half moon, I think it pretty much was. Well, let's go to your report because you're going to tell us.
2: So um, this is our first show of official fall, even (laughs) all the false starts we've had up to now that, you know, wasn't really fall. But um, today, uh, from dawn to dusk, we have 13 hours and eight minutes of light. And um, wait a second. Oh, no, no. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was the last show. This show we have... <laughs> <laughs> this come show, on, Laura. I know. Jeez, Wake me up. I have to have some more caffeine. We campaign. depend on you. I for know. Well, that's... You know, uh, yeah. Okay. So we have... 12 hours and 30 minutes from dawn to dusk, we've lost 38 minutes of light since the last show.
0: That's shocking and, and really unacceptable.
2: It is. But you know what I've noticed is that the last few shows, the amount of light we've lost is slowing down by just a couple of minutes each time. So, you know, that kind of makes me feel a little bit better. But we're going to, we only have 77 days until the winter solstice when it starts getting um, more daylight again. And and so the next show in two weeks, on October 19th, um, we will go from 30—we um, will, will lose 36 minutes between now and then, and it'll be 11 hours and 54 minutes by the next show. Um,
0: I, it's just FYI, I mean, it seems like—this is my own impression—it yeah. seems to get— into twilight about 6:30 now.
2: Yeah, I know. I'm Is just that right? I, I don't much? I don't know pretty much. Yeah, 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 cuz I think it's around 6:30 something in the morning for sunrise and 6:30 something at night for sunset. Uh, uh. And yes. So, I've been noticing that and it's it's um, you know, it's kind of putting a damper on things. I think, <laughs> "Oh, I can do this and go out and it'll still be light and you know, it's not. Is so. this
0: a, is this a function of global warming? What's happening right now? Well,
2: I think you should blame <laughs> it on whoever you want to blame it on. Okay. Well, who do you
3: blame so it on? Steve? This
0: is one thing we can't blame on, on global
3: warming. Yeah. This, this is just natural cycles.
2: So. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, yeah. but I think Richard would like to anyway. Um, so for the, for the lunar report, I just want to mention that, um, in between the last show and this, I was out West in the mountains and I, I, um, I didn't time it this way, but I had the most amazing view of the supermoon last week. All week, every night, I got to see it rise above the mountains behind where I was staying. And um, I just sat there and drank tea and, and watched the moon rise. And I think that's so good for your soul or for my soul. Um, and I'm I'm feeling a little sad because we only have two supermoons in 2024 and not until September and October. And, um, you know, between now and then, I don't know if it's, if, you know, it it's just won't be the same. But our new moon is October 14th, which is in, what is it, nine days. And the, that will be the cycle leading to the full hunter moon on October 28th, which is not a supermoon. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to keep saying it. it's not a supermoon. Um and then on October 14th, we also have an annular or partial solar eclipse. Um, but and and millions of people in the western hemisphere will see it, but not us. It'll be from Texas west in the United States. Hmm. And um, Will then, but then there will be. That's only a partial. That's an annular. And then next year in April, on April eighth, we will have. Um, there will be a full solar eclipse just north of us, you um, know, in, in New England. So we'll, it'll pass from Texas and then up past New England and then north. But you know, conceivably, people could drive from Connecticut and go see it. So that's nice. And I read that people are already making their plans. So. <laughs> You know, <laughs> you
0: better you better book your flight.
2: You yeah, got, but no, it was really fill
0: your ca- car with gas. Now. It was
2: really funny because I saw these the, like there there the, there the were people taking odds about where it's going to be clean. You know, clear that night because you need a clear or day. You need a clear sky to see it. And so, how do you pick? Like, if you were going to like choose northern New York State or northern Vermont, what what area would you pick?
0: Yeah, and this you're talking six months from now or something, right? Yeah, in six
2: so, months exactly. Farmers' Almanac. Well, yeah, where where would you pick, Steve? <laughs>
3: oh God! I mean, we I've got a good <laughs> say here. We got you know you need a big skyline. You need it to not only be clear, but you want to be able to see a lot of the sky. Right. So that's where you know if you can get out to great lookout points, um, well, we've got some throughout Connecticut. I wouldn't necessarily run to another state to find it, but you got to be ready day of you know. <laughs> But, and to move around because the weather right. is mobile, you know there could be so just be prepared to go. So you and need you need to, to live re- don't in don't your be car too to your site. Yeah, the- you,
2: you need to have like all your clothes in your car so <laughs> um, we can start planning that. But yeah, it's it's I don't I don't it's not going to be full lunar eclipse in Connecticut, but we'll have a partial one, and the one um, on the fourteenth, I think there will be some partiality to it here on the east coast but whatever you do you still can't look directly at it even if it's well, not you're talking a full a solar eclipse. Yeah, the, these are solar eclipse, right. Yeah, so, so you can't really look directly at it even if it's not a full eclipse Yeah. So, um, and you know what the next show is the 19th and until then that's our solar lunar report okay just one
0: last thing on that yeah. uh, what I was looking at last night appeared to be about a half a moon, is is that is that about right? It's
2: probably now. It's probably a little, maybe. Yeah, no, you're right. Because if we have another nine days until it's new, that means it is kind of around half. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, I think that would make sense. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. That's what I'm looking at outside right, just before I came in outside the farm. There's a nice half moon up, up in the sky
2: because because mm. the the full moon was last Friday. So that would mean that, and then we have another, you know, around a week. So that would mean it would be about halfway there. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. All right. So so it is with the uh, solar lunar information <laughs> that Laura dispenses each time. Let us move to the small farms report, Steve. Uh, you're how you've had a really unusual week here. The the all the pundits, all the all the. Uh, prognosticators, all the meteorological—what uh, uh, shall we call them? Um, you know, um, uh, I forget it. I'm not going to think of the word. But anyway, tell us what this meant to you this this week, where we were. I mean, I, yes, I I went swimming twice yesterday. <laughs> I mean, that's right. how warm it was. Well, and, and that was the fourth swim of my week, and it's not even Friday yet. So um, it's that kind of week. You know, so how what was it like on the farm and what does it mean for your fall harvest?
3: Sure. Well, so uh, we're grateful for the sunshine um, and the warmth yesterday, I think, was a little surprising. You know, we've had a couple of days in, in the 80s and today is in the mid 70s. But, you know, over the weekend, we had almost four more inches of rain from last Friday into That's Saturday. Right. Uh, you know, other places, I'm sure, got more. You know, I've heard reports of six inches plus, uh, you know, in different towns. So, um, you know, we need the, the clear sky and some warmth to help, um, you know, uh, evaporate some of it, help it drain, help the soil dry out. Uh, it's just it's just been such a wet year and it keeps coming. And it looks like, you know, there might be more coming tomorrow. So, um, you know, though, the temperature is a bit unseasonable for it to be this warm the last few days i'm sure you enjoyed the swim and you know we certainly enjoyed the soil kind of drying out a little bit because we needed that help it it, you know this at this time of year if it stays cooler if it stays cloudy it takes longer to dry out and uh, on our farm, one of the things that, you know, I've talked about that we do is we actually do a lot of planting at this time of year for overwinter growing. Um, and if the soil is going to be fully saturated, that's going to slow some of the growth down. So we certainly want some water, but we don't want it to be oversaturated. We don't want puddles on our farm. Um, but the, the, this warmth is helping dry that out and, and then you know, helping Uh, The growth of some of these crops. So, you know, as I've talked about this sort of September, October time, we're getting our roots established and we're getting a little bit more growth and then there's less growth in the winter. They sort of hibernate as we um, get towards harvesting because um, they're really, you know, when we we'll have the lowest light of the year from, you know, mid-November into you know, mid-January, there's not a lot of growing that's happening. So we're trying to get as much growth as we can on some of these crops now. So we're currently appreciating this warmth. Uh, I would say it, it was a little bit surprising yesterday. Um, you know, and any time you have a big temperature swing, it can it can be, you know, a little jarring to the system. But uh, overall, I think we're, we're pretty happy for it.
0: Yeah, so... When you're talking about growing through not planting now and, and, and overwintering, are we talking purely in the high tunnels or are you, are you talking outdoors as well?
3: Some of it's outside as well. So, yes, both the tunnels inside our, our high tunnels, which are unheated, um, so they're getting extra warmth and, and nighttime, kind of trapping the heat by closing doors and closing the sides, Um but some of it is growing outside. So, you know, I was just out uh, tending to some of our arugula and salad mix, you know, which was planted or sowed, you know, directly seeds into the soil about a month ago, but will, you know, still still grow and, and then we'll harvest it and it will have regrowth, you know, throughout October and even November. Um, and if, you know, conditions stay... Uh, warmer, you know, we'll get a little more growth. It's, you know, we could have a frost anytime in October too. So a frost could kind of kill some of those things off. We also think about our cover crop that's growing. You know, we still have uh, one of the more tender cover crops in in buckwheat, and a, a frost uh, will kill it off. But if we don't get a frost, it'll it'll continue to grow. Some of that 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 biomass will grow. Um, and that will help our soil as well. So there's, there's both crops and cover crops outside that we're getting more growth out of with a, with a warmer fall. Um, so, you know, though, climate change has numerous things that are, um, you know, can be frightening. Um, but, you know, there are some little benefits that I like, and we've had a more reliable um, later season harvest and growth um, uh, typically into into November and December, we, we at least here in the state, uh, we've been a little bit more comfortable, you know, and reliable in being able to grow stuff.
2: Um, I have a couple of questions. First, um, with buckwheat, um, which I love, um, when does that when does when does that um, come due? And my second question is, do you mulch your leaves for the overwintering?
3: So for, for our buck, we, we don't end up harvesting any oh. seed. We just, we just let it go to flower for the bees. And oh. if we want to let it go to seed, it'll, you know, give us another round of cover crop right in place, but we don't collect any of it. Oh. So it's about, depending on the time of the year, it's about six weeks from sowing until flowering and then another couple of weeks um, till those seeds will form and drop. Um, but so we don't do any harvesting. We we typically mow it in place or leave it as a sort of uh, protective cover. So when it frosts and kills, it'll it'll still pr- be a protective layer for the soil as kind of a, a brown crop residue uh, that we can incorporate in the spring to the soil or rake off, depending on uh, you know and then compost it depending on the crop or the size of the space that it's in. But typically, we would incorporate it right into the sea- into the soil.
2: Well, that's good because it's um, very nutritious.
3: Yes, yeah. So that's the green manure. So we're growing that as as fertility for the, for the for the crop. And that's why getting more growth now and getting better more biomass is helpful because it feeds that soil. So all the fungal life, all the bacterial life, all the invertebrates in the soil will feed on that crop residue. Um, so and then in terms of leaf mulch, yes, we spread a good bit of leaf mulch in the fall, but it, it's um, and in the spring, but we're not quite at that stage yet.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah. Keep us posted.
0: Steve I I have a very I have like a I think a four by eight I might be exaggerating a bit little garden which uh, has morphed into pretty much of an herb and flower garden over the years as I've given up the ghost and the fight against the uh, the woodchuck and the other and the um, the chipmunks and and the squirrels and the other creatures that come and Feast upon any type of vegetable. I try try to grow there, but uh, you know I, now the garden is completely overgrown with what looks like some kind of wild wheat. Now I don't know if it's buckwheat. I don't know if it's some something. But other, can you school us on on any sort of varieties of these sort of, um, I guess you would call them volunteer <laughs> wheats that that have crop uh, popped up in in. Um, in uh, my garden, and probably other people's gardens.
3: You know, I'm I'm not sure. I wonder. You know, the, you know, wheat is a kind of grass, I suppose. So, um, yeah. I wonder what what it is exactly you're seeing. <clears throat> are you seeing it sort of head up already? Or are you seeing like a, a, a tassel and a? Um,
0: yes, yes, I am. And and uh, the other thing about it that's uh, a little nerve wracking is that. When I try to pull it up, you know, when I try to clear a little space for, for the remaining marigolds and, and other little flowers that are still there, um, it, the root system is just really, really resistant to uprooting. So um, I'm wondering if I were to, let's say, two three weeks from now, just like mow that down, and let everything, I mean, what should I do? Should I, just, should I try to uproot it or should I, should, does that root system, even though it's so vigorous and, and and it seems to have like kind of a network going under there, um, should I just let that be and will that decay and, and end up being nutritious to the soil or is it going to be a problem when I try to plant next spring?
3: Well, I have the, the common error the common answer of it depends. Uh, it depends on a lot of factors. So if it's already gone to seed and you mow it, you know, it's gonna leave seed there that can regrow. You know, depending on exactly what it is, you might be able to pull out and uproot it, but it depend you know, some grasses might have rhizomes in the ground that can still spread. It. So it it will be helpful to find out exactly what it is that you've got there to see the best way to remove it. Uh, but in terms of the The sort of rest of the body of the plant, that green matter. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's green manure, it's organic matter, so it could be composted. But, you know, if you've got seed in there that won't get killed and if you don't want it to be there, you you don't want to leave it in place. Um, so I don't know, I I might just, you know, taking a picture and, and IDing it, trying to get a good idea of what it is, because there are some things that when you pull up, um, you know, nutsedge is an example that it's sort of, um, you know, nuts edges uh, can really take over a space but they uh propagate beneath the ground. You know, they have got a seed head but they've got little like um nutlets, they call them there, like under the ground that um, you know, will help them grow as well. Or sometimes you see little little corms uh, or little little round circles of seed that, you know, are sort of like rhizomes below the ground. They're not quite rhizomes or corms, I think, are the right word for some the grasses that will have some well, um, things that can reproduce under the ground so it'll be helpful to know what it is for, mm-hmm. um, so sorry to do that you know it, it depends but it's yeah. it the stuff yeah
0: yeah yeah, yeah. well before uh, just the last question on that so but the the roots underneath if i were to if i were to clip that off right at the at the base would those roots decay and become Know, part of a, a biosystem underneath the ground, which would be helpful to the soil, or, or are they just going to be a yeah, problem?
3: Absolutely. You know, yeah. as long as they're roots and not rhizomes that might regrow, um, they they yeah, you know the underground uh, biology is very happy to have decaying roots of all kinds. Uh, so absolutely, you know those roots. As they get eaten up, they create important pathways for, you know, worms and various bugs to move through and also air and water. So, you know, those roots are, you know, not only having kind of a symbiotic relationship when they're alive, but when they decay, they're creating those pathways and they're creating that the food uh, for everything in in the soil uh, biology and ecology. So, absolutely.
0: And how, and how do we make the call between roots and rhizomes, in terms, you know?
3: Uh, it takes uh, you know you can as you explore and pull things up you can kind of tell um, you know they you know roots um, are typically a hairier and um, rhizomes you can tell have some some body to them a little more I'll think about a better way to describe that for the future but um, mm-hmm. okay. uh, the yeah. more you pull stuff up yeah I think as you separate things you'll get an idea
0: okay. uh, very good all right well I think we have our honeybee report. Queued up. Vincent Kay, are you ready to uh, take us on a journey there somewhere out in the wild today?
1: Enthrall us. I I am. And uh, thank you for having me. And um, uh, my helper, John Gradzik, and I are here in Hamden at Hindinger Farms, where we have a fairly large uh, apiary. And, uh, dogs are under the truck, uh, snapping at bees as they come through (laughs) and, uh, we're parked in the shade. So it's a good spot and it's a good time. Um, and it's, the weather is unbelievable. Uh, gosh, we've, we've really gotten some great moisture for a lot of the fall flowers. Um, and the bees and the hives have taken on a good amount of weight, um, for their winter food supplies, um, and it's um it's good that right now, um, what's blooming out here is a goldenrod, which is kind of the tail end of it. Um, the little white asters that you see everywhere along the roadside mm, and yep. any any lot that has a that's <laughs> not tarred over has them, and um, they su- they supply um a lot of insects, but in particular honeybees with nectar um, going into the winter. Um, it's a scruffy little flower, but it's um, looks like a daisy but. If you see a patch of it, sometimes it's white, sometimes it's got a little bit purple in it. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a beautiful flower, and it, uh, for for uh, honeybees in particular, and they just cover it. It's amazing. Um, yeah, and uh, I Japan-
0: yeah just to, just to interject, I I took a little video of a you know a clump of asters yesterday, and the madness. Uh, you know, I I said the the dance of the sugar plum pollinators because there, there must have been. Probably I don't know five different species of insects on there, just like nice. feasting and dancing around. I don't think I saw a honeybee on there, but I did wow. see bumblebees and all kinds of yeah. other things. Yeah. But I didn't know what they were, but those th- those humble flowers certainly are popular.
1: Yes, they are, and uh, uh, I've seen some Joe Pye weed and some ironweed, but they're sort of at the tail end now. They've they've gone to seed and um, are standing just kind of drying out, um, in patches where the, the highway or whoever has pruned the Japanese knotweed, it, it is covered with honeybees, um, and other pollinators, including, well, it's a little late now, but the monarchs, um, were on it quite heavily, um, monarch butterflies. So it's, um, you know, it's kind of winding down everything, uh, everything is kind of done its dance and it's, 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 Productivity, and then now it's it's looking towards winter, and um, the honeybees are very active. And yeah, I, I kind of touched on it a little bit on the last um, segment we did, Richard. But you know, honeybees are one of the few insects that survive the winter as a social unit. And in that, in saying that, it's interesting because they don't go to sleep; they don't hibernate. So a lot of the pollinators that you see on flowers now, other than honeybees are going to be dead after the first frost. So their daily consumption of nectar is such that it, um, it's important, of course, but it's to survive the day. It's to survive the night or maybe two nights. And it, they don't need to, in any large quantities, store away food um, because they are going to go to sleep or they're going to die. One of the few things, like with a bumblebee, for instance, the queen bee um, – is the only one that survives, and she mates um, now at about this time of year and goes out um, when the cool weather happens, and she hibernates under the leaves or under the straw solo by herself. And all of the other bumblebees in that unit, which, you know, maybe 20 or 30, um, it, it's a beautiful system, but they, they will all die, as will hornets and wasps, etc., um, come first frost or the first real hard freeze. So they don't survive the winter. And um, honeybees um, have to have a certain amount of food because they don't hibernate, and they have to consume that in order to create the heat needed for survival. And if you take the lid off of a hive in the dead of winter, it could be sub-zero weather, you'll have a blast of 70-degree temperatures coming out of that hive. It's it's just remarkable. And um, so what we really um, are trying to do in educating people – is to, if they can, postpone their mowing schedule in particular um, because uh, everything that's needed in the fall for, for not just honeybees but other pollinators as well, um, in my mind, has a right to those flowers more than somebody who's got a big mower or a tractor or a flailing mower or whatever it may be that the highways. And I wish and maybe someday we will educate people to just wait a little longer, maybe by a week to 10 days to allow these things to bloom and to give what they have to offer to, to nature. And it's kind of, you know, connecting the dots. And uh, hopefully at some point, you know, we just keep pounding away, but if they can, if people can wait on mowing and, and, and pruning and trimming until the flower heads are gone, then after that, go at it. But, you know, it's, uh, it's so important to allow um, not just insects, but also migratory birds to um have access to these nectars. Hummingbirds, in particular, are uh, feasting right now on some of these flowers before they migrate south or west southwest. Um, so, in any event, um, that's what's going on out here. And we are um, we've noticed we, we're on our way to a bee yard in Prospect, Connecticut, way up on a hillside, and there's probably a, a, a ten acre patch of goldenrod below that um, the water authority has um, allowed to bloom. And, uh, hopefully it hasn't been mowed, but, uh, as of last week, it was blooming and the hives were just heavy, so heavy. And you go out into the middle of the field of goldenrod and it's just covered, covered with honeybees and other pollinators. But, um, it really makes a difference in our bottom line because, um, we don't have to feed sugar syrup. In other words, we don't have to go buy sugar, um, to feed these bees. These bees are getting it from nature and, um, it's probably more beneficial anyhow, but it's, um... It really makes a difference in in, uh, in our bottom line financially. So that's where we're at. And uh, I don't know if you have any questions, but um,
0: uh, yeah, yeah. I, I one question. Just you, you mentioned the sugar versus you know natural uh, yeah. pollen uh, converting to to honey. What's the difference in the quality of the honey that results from that? I, I, actually, now that I think of it, you're talking about feeding the bees over winter, and they're not okay. producing honey, honey for consumption no. at that point. But is they're, there,
1: storing it, they're, yeah. they're storing it as if it were honey. And you have to differentiate pollen and nectar. They're two different substances on mm-hmm. the food groups. One, the pollen is the protein, and the nectar, or honey, is the carbohydrates. So unless the bees, the honeybees, that is, are raising young bees, the pollen is not that important because it's a protein that they feed to the young larvae. So right now even though the bees are bringing in pollen it's not that important I mean you know yeah 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 but the nectar is what's going to create the, the the fuel for the fire uh, to create the heat in their little bodies and um, so that's important and I, I they say that sugar syrup and all the manuals and all the you know uh, research that's been done on honeybees and there's a lot of research that actually sugar syrup in the right quantities of or the right ratio between uh, sugar and water, not too much water, because you don't want to uh, have them expend too much energy trying to dehydrate it. Um, so it's a you know net loss in that sense. But um, it's actually a cleaner food to give them than the the nectar that they would get from nature because it's it's thinner, it's 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 uh, more precise of what the body uh, their diet is. Requiring going into the winter, so um, we don't again feed unless we have to because it's so expensive, but um health wise for the bees it's probably better than the nectar they're getting um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but um yeah, uh, we can try again if <laughs> if <laughs> <No>. I fail <laughs> no, I, think,
0: I think no I, I it it's it it takes we do need to keep repeating these things. I appreciate that you're being patient with. Me oh, no. uh, and our audience on these things because the uh, uh, just the science of the way these things happen is uh, um, I, I, I was I I always got like Cs in biology you know so I'm <laughs> <laughs> so it's all coming it's all coming back to haunt me now. Sometimes we actually
1: um, even um, even though it's not that necessary we do feed in the fall going into the winter um, a pollen patty which is these, this paste which is made into these patties that you can give to the hive. And they chew on it. it gives them something to do, I always feel like. <laughs> you know, all winter long, they probably sit in there brooding away, and uh, it's dark, it's cold, and they have nothing to do. So I give them the pollen patty, which is made of brewer's yeast and um, soy flour and a lot of good stuff. I mean, I mean <laughs> if you were to take it apart, the ingredients, it's, it's all organic. It's just, you know, probably people would serve better by eating them, but in any event the bees chew on it um and you know all winter long the, by the time spring comes it you know they kind of you, you see them all sur- you know what little is left you see them all in a circle it's kind of like around the water cooler and they're just kind of like having a meeting like gosh wish we had more of this you know yeah, it's, a,
0: it's a chew toy for the bees you know? <laughs> exactly exactly
1: <laughs> but it does have some benefits as well and um so anyhow we do that and um you know, uh, we do our, we do everything possible to give these bees a break because, uh, of course, we're in business. But at the same time, you know, we, dead bees don't produce honey. We're absolutely certain of that.
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> Very good,
0: uh, Vincent K. Swords into Plashers, honey. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. What a what an adventure it is uh, to follow you on your on your uh, on your journeys. <laughs> well, thank
1: you. It's good to be grounded in in some ways because it is a journey out here, and uh, you know the radio provides kind of a, uh, a grounded. Uh, I don't know a, a sense of uh, there's other people in the world besides us and the bees.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Touchstone, <laughs> very good.
1: Right, right. A whetstone, correct. Yeah, great, great. Anyhow, thank thank you, and then and, and good luck with everything. Yes. Yep. Yeah. All
0: right. We'll talk to you in a, in, a, in a month. Beautiful. All right. Thank, take Thanks, care. Thanks, Vincent. Vincent.
1: Take
0: care now. Bye bye. All right. All right, Laura. Over okay. to you for our special guest.
2: I am very pleased to introduce Patty Pop, who's the owner of Sport Hill Farm in Easton. She is a first-generation farmer who started farming her property in two thousand, and um, she grows vegetables and melons on her property. She has a, a farm stand, um, a barn on her property where she sells from, and she. Um, now has expanded to other properties that she rents, but she also is very committed to education and doing things her own way and is very excited about the pumpkins here now for Halloween, aren't you, Patty?
5: <laughs> Me, never. No. Wait, Hi, everyone. You wait all year. I know. <laughs> Patty Pop's pumpkin patch is happening. Yeah.
0: Hey, P- Patty, I have, a, I have a question before you before you get off. Yeah. Um, I just wondered because I wonder if uh, you had a favorite color when you were like a, a toddler. You know. <laughs>
5: Was it orange or green? or? I know. I You know, honestly, I don't think I ever did. I don't know what drew me to Halloween. My mom's birthday is actually, she's a Halloween baby, and maybe it was just that. But there's just something magical about the way Connecticut changes. This is why I'm here, you know, the four seasons, and to see. I love the gold and those deep reds and all that stuff and oranges. So that's what I'm just drawn to, I guess. <laughs>
0: yeah well just uh from my own story is that i my favorite color as a kid I remember when I was like you know four or five years old it was orange was one of my favorite colors and also blue now, uh. I, don't know, I don't know where that came from but but <laughs> yes yeah, so, but I think that uh orange is it's an incredibly powerful and evocative color and so uh, it's always it's always magical when the pumpkins appear
2: what's what oh, color what color pumpkins are there because I know there's orange and white and green mm-hmm. what color and like
5: a greenish blue one yeah hmm. There, there's so many, I mean, there's different varieties, different colors, even some of the varieties we're growing have multiple colors on them. It's just magical the way nature just provides us, our bodies, what we need at certain times of the season. And um, just to watch something grow into this beautiful product that we either eat or we decorate with or we share with others, it's just, it's really magical. And I think as a farmer the fall for me is just a time when I can just breathe and think back of how we were like crazy in March, starting the seedlings, starting this greenhouse up you know, the, you know to heat it with the propane to get these little babies to grow and now you know, fast forward, we went through summer, summer was better than last year with the drought um, maybe a little too much moisture but you're never going to get it right anyways and um for me to look out on my pumpkin patch and be like, oh, my God. Like, I was just yelling at my husband I'm ago, saying we have you no pumpkin. You don't yell at Al. Because <laughs> <laughs> the deer ate them. <laughs> and then they just kept coming back with truckload after truckload. And it's magical. And it's a miracle. It really is if we just sit and really think about how that one little seed, any of us who've ever planted something, grows into this magical product that you either can eat or flowers that you enjoy in your house. It's really, it blows my mind, you know, coming from a different space now where I'm immersed in nature. Nature is my office 24-7. It's not like I have a job where I can just let it go, come home and forget about it. It is a way Mm -hmm. of life.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about, about your farm. What does it look like? How many acres? How, how did yeah. you get this whole operation started?
5: <laughs> I you don't know. I'll o- blame I it on I my
2: husband. People by saying you went from <laughs> bones to beets and we
5: need to yes. get the answer to that. All right. We did. I went from bones to beets in my previous life. <laughs> I worked for an orthopedic for many years. I think at least 12 or 13 years through high school, through college, You know, when I had my kids, we moved to Easton in 97. We um, found this house, which was built in 1740, which was in foreclosure, and everybody ran out of it. And I saw the potential that could be it. So we purchased it. My poor husband did not know how much work would have to go into redoing it, (laughs) but we redid it, and I was happy. I grew up in a historical house, so that's why my love for anything old in history is just, I don't know, I find fascinating. And so fast forward to 99, we acquired the property next door, and together, between the two properties, we have um, nine acres and then my husband was just like, oh, let's clear the land because it was all wooded. So I had no landscaping in the beginning. I had deer eating everything because it was woods that divided the two. So we did clear the land and he's like, let's start a farm. Sure, honey. I had two little boys, (laughs) not thinking clearly.
0: Get those kids to work. eh? (laughs)
5: Right. They were like, what, five, six at the time? (laughs) You know, down came the trees, came up all the Connecticut potatoes, a.k.a. rocks. You know, every time you dig in Connecticut, you always hit some of those babies. And it's just been, I don't know, just, I don't know what kept us going. It was just the frustration level in the beginning because I did not really grow up around farmers markets or around fresh food. You know, everybody's you know, has family traditions and just way of cooking. So it's been a total lifestyle change with everything. But we cleared the land. We started farming here in Easton. Um, And then through the years, we've been lucky that in order to practice crop rotation and to grow a variety of things like we do we needed more space is what it boiled down to and we've had some properties in easton that are owned by people but they're not farmers but it's uh, farmland so we take over a lease and we're able to now expand our you know offerings and do some fun things like my popcorn and my pumpkins and yeah it's it's an evolution always
0: I bet Steve has some uh, some insights here some perspective uh, because Steve Mono from Masaro Farm Steve uh-huh. tell tell us a little, may, maybe compare notes here with with Patty about what you had to do you know I, I know that there's a long history of Masaro Farm and there was a transition period um, what is Patty's story how does that resonate with you
3: well, I can certainly relate to the rocks. We, we've got those I mean, the potatoes here too. So
1: that was uh,
3: that was certainly you know I think so for so many farmers when you start on a new property or a place that hasn't been used in a while, you're going to find a lot of them. Um, yeah. But yeah, I understand the uh, you know the challenges, the the frustrations, and um, the life changing aspect of it. Uh, you know, I didn't grow up with farming either. I came to it uh, as an adult and. Um, I'm I'm very grateful for it and it's continually challenging and rewarding and I think it sounds like you're experiencing that as well and uh, I'm excited to hear more of your story I know we were going to get pumpkins so which is not something we do here I I, I like pumpkins and we grow lots of winter squash or actually not all that much winter squash we grow enough winter squash to kind of do a little bit for our CSA um, but uh, I'm excited to hear more about your your pumpkin patch
2: you should (laughs) check it out it's really something special and yeah, Patty, and that's
5: how we started, yeah. too, with the CSA program, because I had heard of it from Fort Hill Farm in um, New Milford, and we took on 20 brave families who we were totally honest. were oh. like, listen, you're taking this ride with us. We don't know where it's going to go. Needless to say, they had a lot of sweet corn and zucchini that year.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so you are a CSA, and I, I think you... you I'm not sure if you're certified, but you use organic practices
5: yes. on, the, on the Follow far- the OMRI book guidelines. I've had a lot of health issues that I am very particular in the way things are growing and the meats we sell here. I'm very careful with how we pick our products that we sell to other people. It's important for me that, A, it's local, I think, is the biggest draw for me that is super important and yes of course we don't want to be drenched in pesticides and fungicides and all that good stuff so things aren't perfect but we all grown up in the grocery store and you know we go inside those places and things are at us 365 so it's hard to explain to people, a CSA role model. We did our CSA program for 15 years and I let it go. I do what we call a crop cash program, which is more flexible and not as stressful for us as a husband and wife farm team.
0: So what does that mean? What's the difference?
5: So the crop CropCast program works the same way as we had started our CSA where they pay us um, in the winter for startup costs such as fuel for the greenhouse. We use propane, um, potting mix, all the seeds, our laborers that come in. You know, there's a lot of expenses, but we're not open per se selling and having income coming in. So they will pay me in the winter. And instead of coming every week to our farm to pick up, you know, what the share has that week, mm-hmm. uh, we basically use it as a farm credit. So we have a system in our market where we upload the person's name with their farm credit, and then they work it down. And that way, people who have their own gardens, you know, can supplement. Or you know, they're looking for fruit. We don't grow a lot of fruit. We get a lot of fruit from local purveyors, so we bring that in. So it's. I feel like it's a win-win for everybody, and it just. There's enough going on the farm with the picking and the transporting and the rotating crops. And, you know, there's always something happening that to add the CSA on top of it and, you know, putting together. we The most shares I believe we had at one time was like 150, which I had nightmares about vegetables. I was literally <laughs> out there counting the heads of lettuce. You know, <laughs> things happen in nature. Deer come along, eat it overnight disease we've had bear get into our cornfield and knock everything down so it's a challenge
2: <laughs> well i i did your csa for a few years and um it was a lot of food and um i find i really like the crop cash and you you didn't mention that Well, people give you money uh a, a set money you their farm credit is 10 percent more than what they yes. give you yes, thank and you. yeah and um I I'm running I've run out of my farm credit already this year <laughs> and and I've added extra to it so that's that just shows how much I like it but the with the thing about the crop cash is that so some, there's sometimes when all I want is to get like five heads of lettuce literally yep. mm-hmm. and so it really does make it more flexible than although I mean there's good things about Csa too where you can try totally. things you haven't before but I, I you know I, I'm pretty happy with with you I, I I split my 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 shopping between Massaro and Sport yeah. <laughs> and um no, and that's
5: great.
2: I think yeah. we should put
5: local first, you know,
2: yeah, and um I was just wondering, going coming down because you're open until December sometime what what is it about this last time of year that's so um enthralling for you?
5: I just, like I was saying before, just to be able to sit back and I can breathe a little bit, it brings me joy to have the pumpkin patch, to see people excited and taking pictures and all this hard work, all this worry, all the obstacles that nature throws at you that you got to this point of, like, harvest, and what a blessing, Like, it's just we don't stop and sit and really look at nature because, believe me, before I was a farmer, I was in the rat race. You know, I had to pick up the kids up from the sitters and bring them home and make dinner and give them baths and to bed and wake up and the same thing. So springs would go by and summers would go by and falls would go by. And I never really stopped and sat in a chair. wow. This is pretty magical. And I just think, you know, and it's for me knowing that the end is coming. You know, we all need a time to reboot. Unfortunately, I don't have a lot of free time per se, um, but to be able to, you know, nourish our community it's worth every bit of sacrifice because I do have a little bit of break. January and February are the quieter months. You know, we're looking at seed catalogs, placing orders, but there's nothing physical. We shut down the greenhouses and all that at that time.
2: So, what can you can I can you just tell me now that um, Derek and Chris are both grownups? Um, mm-hmm. How much? And I know that they're still around. How much do they participate? in? do do they do you see them wanting to take over
5: the farm someday? I do not. And I <laughs> never really pushed that. Honestly, you know, if I, it was good that I was naive going into this I don't know if I'd be at this point. It's a lot of work. To be authentic, to grow your own stuff, it's a lot of work, a lot of patience, a lot of time, energy. And you know, I don't have a lot of animals. We just have the chickens for eggs. But it's I can't just take off and leave. You know, who's gonna come and watch, you know, a hundred plus chickens? Not many people running to me to say today you're going to do that for me.
0: (laughs) So, tell us a little bit more about farming the the pumpkins per se, and then Mm -hmm. you know you mentioned the chickens, and how how does all this get integrated? But but let's just talk pumpkins for a minute. Yeah. What? How how does that work? uh, You know, in terms of
5: actually, the pumpkin business had began because. it's got to be at least 10 years or more ago. Um, we have a beautiful new elementary school built in Easton, Samuel Staples, and they had gone through a period where they decided that they would like a farmer to be able to lease the space. So um, we won the bid at that time, and so we wanted something that would be fun for the children, right? So we would put, pumpkins on one side and then a lot of the brassica families, cabbage, kale, collards, broccoli, because that's stuff the deer normally don't eat and we didn't have a fence around that property. And being on the school a lot, the um weeds grew over the pumpkins so it kinda hid them from the the deer. So it worked out. I know some mm. people were complaining it didn't look pretty, but sometimes farming is a little messy. <laughs> especially when you don't pour it on chemicals. But um, we then had promoted Pick Your Own on the school site. People came, and then we donated 15% back to our school system through the PTA and ELF, which is another foundation that helps kids. But, um, you know, it was great when we had it the first few years, but then as time has progressed, you know, people... When we talk about and think about fall, want the hayrides and the corn maize. So the interest, people weren't showing up for the pumpkins. It didn't matter that we were growing them, so we kind of let it go. And But we carry this on at another field. We lost that property. We let it go a few years back because it's just as we get older. We only have one piece of equipment that gets moved to three different properties, and, and it's a lot, you know?
0: What's, what does it take to grow pumpkins? Is that... Is there a special, you know, process and skill or can... I don't think
5: so. It's just like any other winter squash, any other fruit, vegetable. There's always challenges. Like I said, the deer got in the field. We're munching on a bunch of them. Of course, when I go over there, I see all the ones that are eaten. And I'm thinking to myself, we'll have no pumpkins this year. (laughs) But, you know, they need a lot of room. So we have a dedicated half acre at one of our properties that's solely for the pumpkins. So... We grow them. My, we go over with our trailer and our trucks, take them off the vine, load them up, and then unload them back here. So it's really a double labor of love.
0: What about this uh, issue of cruelty to pumpkins that we were talking it's about It's all earlier?
2: about the
5: stems. <laughs> it's all about the stems, Patty. <laughs> it is. As I see some stems lying on my property already, I'm sad. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm like the stem. I'm the stem lady.
0: Yeah, so tell us about that. You you you, you prefer that people not do pick not pick up your
5: pumpkin by the stem.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
5: This is how I say it because it just sticks in people's mind. It's like trying somebody trying to pick you up by your hair. It's just not <laughs> going to work. The weight of the pumpkin stem—it's not made for that. We hold it for them hmm. because the stem makes sure your- Beautiful and long, and they have character. So we'd like you to pick them up from their bottom.
2: <laughs> yes, that was a big lesson for me. Totally. <laughs> Some people are
0: not comfortable picking up a pumpkin by its butt, but
5: <laughs> <laughs> I know. But you know, <laughs> that's the way they're meant to be carried. So you're changing <laughs> like the world, baby. Patty. You're going to change a everything. Baby. So now <laughs> anybody like pumpkin patch will hear me in their ear. It's like pulling yourself up by your hair. You can't do that. The bottom people, bottom.
2: <laughs> Patty, do you want to just tell us about your um, pizza night and um, your makers and bakers Sundays? All right.
0: And we so, have, just a FYI, we have two minutes, okay. just on, just under two minutes.
5: Okay. So, quick spiel. So, since we don't have the traditional hayrides or the corn maze, we do Oops. market Sundays that are permitting from 10 to 2 through October and we started to do pizza nights here on the farm with a local pizza person, Proof Pizza, and they will be here on Thursday nights from 4 to 7 through December when we close on December 22nd. And it's a great way to be able to support local in Easton. We don't have um, a lot going on besides our farms and um, just trying to bring community together.
0: All right. And this farm, your farm, Sport Hill Farm, is on Sport Hill, Hill Road. Uh-huh. Tell us, uh, yeah, uh, the the actual address
5: five nine six Sport Hill Road in Easton. And do
2: yourself a favor and follow Patty yeah. on Instagram and Facebook. She's so much better at it than me. I know that.
5: <laughs> I'm very present. <laughs> oh really?
0: Yeah. All right. And don't forget the WPKN uh, Organic Farm Stand Facebook page, which is updated very frequently by Laura. And uh, I'm going to put up my. Uh, Dance of the Pollinators
2: uh, okay. video,
0: so that'll be up there. You can. It's really, cool. it's really amazing to look at, at the uh, variety of insects that are pollinating at this point. Uh,
5: thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks, Patty. Hi, thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Have a great one. Yeah, you too. You
0: too. Steve Monroe, thank you so much. Laura Modlin,
5: thank you.
0: Uh, fun to be with you. And my name is Richard Hill. This has been the Organic Farm Stand. last thing be sure to tune in for uh Ga- this is the Gaia-Gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in
4: crisis the U.S. Climate Alliance, a group of 25 governors leading states that make up 60% of the U.S. economy and 55% of its population, pledged last week to quadruple the number of heat pumps installed in their states by 2030. Heat pumps work by either pumping hot air in during winter or hot air out during summer. Because they don't have to first work to heat a coil or other device, they are more energy efficient than other heating methods. They also run on the electric grid so they don't use extra fossil fuels like oil or gas furnaces. In Central America, the driest weather in decades is menacing one of the most important transport arteries on Earth, the Panama Canal. A massive of 40% of the world's cargo passes through the Panama Canal, which ties together the two great oceans in the eastern and western hemispheres. The canal takes millions of gallons via a series of reservoirs from the Central American country that gives it its name. Each ship traversing the canal and its locks requires about 50 million gallons of fresh water. But amid a severe regional drought, Panama's 4 million inhabitants also need fresh water, which they take from the same sources. ExxonMobil Corporation's Chief Executive Officer Darren Woods said government policy isn't enough to reduce emissions and accelerate the world's transition to cleaner energy sources, and a market for carbon emission reductions is needed. Clear government policies around the world focusing on reducing emissions are crucial, he said. He also went on to say that the landmark Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. is catalyzing investment in energy transition supply chains, but more will be required. At the World Petroleum Congress in Calgary recently, Woods said, government cannot afford to subsidize reduced emissions in perpetuity. Ultimately, market forces are going to have to come into play. Per a Rocky Mountain Institute's report, Electric vehicles could be ubiquitous by the end of the decade. Zero-emission vehicles are on track to enjoy a global market share between 62 and 86% by 2030. Global oil demand for cars is past its peak and will be in freefall by the end of the decade. The boom is led by China, the world's largest EV market, and Northern Europe, where countries like Norway are leading the charge with 71% EV market share. Reuters reports Germany is on track to generate more than half of its electricity from renewables this year. The economy minister of Germany said Germany has seen a boom in renewable power. In the first half of this year, renewables, including hydropower and biomass, accounted for 52% of power production in Germany, Europe's largest economy. If trends continue, 2023 will mark the first full year in which the nation generates more than half of its power from renewable energy, largely wind and solar. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said humans are safer than ever from the threat of climate change, and he blasted the Biden administration's effort to address the phenomenon as he unveiled an oil and gas first energy plan. DeSantis pledged to enact a slew of policies to roll back efforts to address climate change, including proposals to make electric vehicles more expensive, ramp up domestic production of fossil fuels, and remove the U.S. from the landmark Paris Climate Agreement. And finally, the United States has begun mobilizing an army to fight climate change with the formation of the American Climate Corps, formerly conceptualized as the Civilian Climate Corps. The White House announced the new initiative will put more than 20,000 young people on career paths in the growing fields of clean energy, conservation, and climate resilience. Environmental activists hailed the new jobs program, which is modeled after the Civilian Conservation Corps created in the 1930s by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, a Democrat, as part of the New Deal.
0: This was The Gaiagram. Environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis.
2: WPKN Programming is supported by Novamont,
0: a Connecticut company, manufacturers of Matterbee, a family of completely biodegradable and compostable bioplastics, which are being used to provide low environmental impact solutions for everyday products. More information is available at materbi.com slash en
5: you're listening to WPKN Bridgeport 89